Shia LaBeouf podcast. This is episode 21, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle from 2003 at 7.05 a.m. on day three of Shia's Marathon. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. Oh, God, this movie. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin with it. Shia's not mm. in it a lot. I'm glad we don't have to really talk about this movie because it's a movie where I like everyone in it, and wow, the whole movie is just unlikable. Yeah, I had an allergic reaction to this movie or something <laughs> like I'd never had before watching a film like it irritated me to no end and i agree like i like the talent involved i just don't know what happened and not much shia i mean we got we got more shia than irobot but less than constantine i think but barely more than irobot he's only in a couple <laughs> scenes what is kind of amazing in the grand scheme of shia the grand scheme of all his movies is that they go to that dirt bike race and i was like oh this has got to be where shia shows up because we've seen him on motorcycles in three or four movies since then the whole time like he doesn't show up and then suddenly at the end of the scene one guy takes his helmet off and it's shia and i was like no way like i can't believe that the scene that i figured he was going to show up in was actually the scene that he showed up in yeah well it turned out to be the longest scene in the oh movie maybe so God. i mean he, everybody kind of shows up we even get crispin glover in that scene but i was so confused as to what was happening who they were chasing who was supposed to be murdered and then i guess shia has a hit on him in this movie like he's in the witness protection program and this guy's trying to kill him i have no idea what the story is in this movie and i did try oh. to follow along but there's something about people getting hit in witness protection but then there's this whole mm-hmm. like backstory about like a uh, an orphanage or something and i think that's where shia grew up <laughs> yeah and maybe that's where drew barrymore grew up i don't know like, all there's right. all sorts of weird people killing each other's parents and everything <laughs> but i feel like it doesn't really matter what the movie is about because the whole thing is just basically it's an hour and 45 minutes of these three attractive girls playing dress up and it's fun for them and it's fun for girls to go see the movie because like this is literally like a movie about like starring girls sort of for girls but it's also for guys sort of I guess because they're all attractive and like they're in bathing suits sometimes there's nothing here I mean we've talked about other movies just being like surface level but like this is like there's just there's nothing here what you see is what you get it's pretty people doing fun things I guess (laughs) it's kind of like Fast and the Furious movies if there was nothing to them like, because I feel like Fast and Furious movies, and this is a whole other topic, maybe, there's depth to those movies. I mean, there's, like, family, and there's, you know, responsibility, and there's actually, like, plots you can sort of follow. Yeah. Here, it's, like, Fast and the Furious if you just didn't want to turn think about, like, anything. Yeah. If you just want to completely turn your brain off. Yeah, yeah, this is all style, zero substance, absolutely. It's Everything is on its surface. The plot is super convoluted. I mean, at the base level, like, an ex-Charlie's Angel is trying to kill everyone in the Witness Protection Agency, but I don't know why, to take over something they never get to. And and then all that other stuff comes into play, like the orphanage with Shia, Drew Barrymore's ex-boyfriend that she put away, and she's in the Witness Protection Program. Like, it all doesn't matter one bit, because it is just, look at this, from moment to moment, I mean, it doesn't even really feel like a movie in that sense that it feels like a series of music video sequences. All of a sudden, we're on a boat, and all of a sudden, we're at the beach selling hot dogs, and then, yep. like, all of a sudden, we're breaking into somewhere. I, I mean, I don't know how or why things are happening, but they're happening. This does just feel like they wanted to make an action flick for girls, and I think 
having seen the first one, that's much more successful. This one is scatterbrained and over the top and out of control, and I don't really feel like they crafted anything for anybody. <laughs> I don't think they... I'm still trying to figure it out. So this movie is the second in the... I guess it's a reboot, because it used to be a TV show yeah. a long time ago. And so they rebooted into the two movies, and then after these two movies, they rebooted into another TV show that was canceled after eight episodes. Ouch. So the first movie, the first Charlie's Angels, cost $93 million and made 264 worldwide, including 125 in the U.S. Huge. So I think that's pretty pretty decent success. Like, even if you double the budget for marketing, they still made, you know, $65 million. So that's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a sequel coming. Here they ramped it up. This one cost $120 million. It only made, though, 259 So, mm. I mean, it still made money, but if you double it, it's not like this runaway success. I guess that's why, I mean, aside from the fact that this just isn't a good movie, like it isn't a coherent, comprehensive, understandable movie, it didn't make a lot of money, and so that's why it's not going to be a third one. But what's kind of a bummer about there not being a third one, at least in terms of what we're talking about today, and I'm, I'm sort of glad that there wasn't a third one because I don't want to see another one of these movies, <laughs> But the big thing in this movie in terms of Shia is that it seems like he's being groomed to be the next Bosley. Yes. Bill Murray was Bosley in the first movie. He hated working with McGee, the director, so much, and apparently got into fights with Lucy Liu on set that he just did not want to come back for the sequel. So Bernie Mac replaces him. There's scenes, like, half of Shia's scenes are with Bernie Mac. It's a little bit what I dubbed last night a pre-union, because we saw him in Transformers a few years from now, but this happens before, so it's not a reunion, it's a pre-union. Bernie Mac's the new Bosley. And then he brings Shia to his mother's house because the witness protection is like, you know, it's, it's safer than witness protection or whatever. And they show a picture on the wall of this other guy that he had brought there in the past or that they looked after in the past. And it's Bill Murray. And so I guess by that logic, Shia is going to be the next Bill Murray after Bernie Mac. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. They were definitely grooming him to be the next something in the next movie to take over. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just very strange. Like, they, why? I don't understand. <laughs> like, they didn't need to over-explain why Bill Murray isn't there, you know? Like, they should have just been, hey, Bosley, and it's Bernie Mac. But instead, it's like Bernie Mac comes from this long line of Bosleys that have always helped out the Angels, and it's, you know, sort of like the Alfred to Batman, except imagine if it was for even longer and you were Alfred's son and you still had to look after the next Batman. Like, it would be insane. It's nuts. Like, I just <laughs> don't know. But apparently, Shia was going to take over and be a bigger part of the next movie. It just reminded me of his career later on will sort of have a little bit of deja vu of this when in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, like he was sort of being like tested out to see if he'll take over for Harrison Ford in the next one. So it's just kind of strange he was in this position twice in his career, being groomed in a manner yeah. to, like, be part of a franchise and all that kind of thing. I, I wish they had pulled back a little bit on all of that over-explaining and just had him be more in the movie, have him being trained on the job by Bernie Mac, you know? That would have been amazing. But instead, he's only in a couple scenes, and, like, it's it's really through no fault of his own, I don't think, that either of these franchises sort of died. I mean, there is, I think there's talk now, currently, like, I think I've seen things this week about, like, an Indiana Jones 5, right? Yeah. Like, they're gonna make another one, but I don't think he's involved. Mm. Is he? I don't think so, but I also think that's a mistake. I think he should be. Oh, he absolutely should yeah. be. I don't think we're just saying that just because of this. No. I think that he was really good in that movie, and like we said, like, our hot take from that episode, that movie's not as bad as you think it is. Yeah, and here he's some of the more enjoyable stuff as well. Like, I didn't know about Shia when this movie came out, actually. Like, you know, I didn't see it in theaters or anything, but if I had, I wouldn't have recognized him as an anybody at the time and it's just crazy because 
he finally is unrecognizable because of how young he is to me. You know, like he took off that helmet and I was like, had to do a double t- I was like, holy shit. But he's still got the same voice. Yes, that's weird. what I was getting at. He's always got that voice, so you could always tell it's him. That's kind of eerie. I don't know, but it, I wasn't expecting that. I was like, how is that voice coming out of that head? It was strange. I don't know. But going back just real quick one second is that, like, what's weird about being groomed in this franchise is that they're playing Clue because, I guess, Parker Brothers or Milton Bradley or whoever makes Clue paid money to be in this movie. I have no idea. But they're playing Clue, and I guess because it's a detective show, they're trying to figure out the mystery of Clue. And Bernie Mac thinks he's, like, really good at Clue, and he gets a thing wrong, and Shia knows... And they're like, oh, no no wonder that he knows, like, he's just like this other guy. And they cut to the picture on the wall of Bill Murray. And not having seen the first movie, or not remembering the first movie, but Bill Murray being so recognizable, I was like, what does this even mean? Like, I feel like in other movies, like, we've seen sequels before, like, we've seen Transformers, where there are nods to previous movies that people will get, but if you haven't seen the previous movie, you're not going to be, like, left out. Like, you just, mm-hmm. it'll just sort of, like, go over your head. Yeah. But here, the camera tilts to the wall, or pans to the wall, there's just a picture of Bill Murray on the wall. Yeah. And I'm just like, wait, what? Like, I don't... <laughs> yeah, no. Like, it made no sense to me. Like, I had to, do, I had to do research to find out that Bill Murray was in the first one and didn't come back for this one. That is the wrong way to, like, wink to your audience. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I was getting at with that whole Bosley scenario, which just mishandled entirely. I mean, I think what they do really well is how they bring back Crispin Glover. Like, that's the perfect way to bring a character back from the first movie. Uh, he was definitely the most standout thing about that first one for me as well. Maybe Sam Rockwell's dance sequence, but when isn't that the best part of a <laughs> Sam Rockwell movie? He's only in, like, two scenes, but we get, like, a little bit of that orphanage background, but it's all very tongue-in-cheek and stuff and fun, and I, I just feel like that's the way you handle it. I mean, don't even show that picture of Bill Murray. Why even bother? It almost feels like you're sticking it to him somehow for not being in your film because, you know, it's like, oh, you don't like me? Like, I'm still gonna, like, put your picture in my movie. I'm still gonna put you in my movie and not pay you for it. Weird. Yeah, it's bad. So there's not a lot to talk about with this movie that we should really get into, but there's two things I want to talk about, and I think you want to talk about them too. Number one, I want to talk about the music. Yes. And number two, I want to talk about not just the cameos, but the people in this movie who are not the angels and not Bernie and not, like, the main villain, Demi Moore, but, like, the next tier down. But in terms of that, like, we have Crispin Glover, who doesn't show up to the end, but he's... Well, he shows up in the middle, getting a haircut and freaking out. Yeah, and he's at the motocross thing, too, because everyone is. But do we see him without a helmet? I think, yeah, he takes his helmet off and sniffs the hair and runs away. Because we see somebody rip hair off one of the angels as she rips the necklace off his throat. Yeah. And that's where they know the, there's the orphanage. Yeah, Shia has the same necklace. I mean, he's crazy. He's, I mean, it's not as crazy as he is in Wild at Heart, but he's, you know, it's him freaking out getting a haircut is kind of classic Crispin. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, when he sort of shows up with a sword and kind of saves the day, like, that's kind of wonderful, too. Mm-hmm. And then we have across from him, Justin Thoreau, star of The Leftovers, now husband, I think, to, to Jennifer Aniston. Mm-hmm. He's, like, ripped dude to a point Insane. where, like, I've never seen somebody ripped. Like, he's <laughs> unbelievably in shape in this movie. Yeah, it's like, watch out Hugh Jackman, even, you know? I, I swear, <laughs> I was like, is that even real? Because who knows the amount of CGI going on? But then I, re- I remember in The Leftovers, he's also pretty built too it's just like insane though because they're riffing on Cape Fear you know and De Niro was notoriously 
famous for getting super ripped for Cape Fear and stuff. So they're playing the Cape Fear music, and they have him in prison with the Cape Fear tattoos, and he's definitely got, like, the ripped Cape Fear body going, too. It's funny. But god damn, like, he is, it's insane. And, like, there's really no reason for it, other than, like, he's just this unstoppable force of nature. But at the same time, he kicks Drew Barrymore in the head, and she basically, like, shakes it off. Like, he <laughs> boots her, basically drop kicks, punts her in the head, and she's just like, oh, that was that was bad. But so like it's weird to show him as this powerful force, this guy who's able to like grab Crispin's sword thrust between his hands and sort of like use it to like catapult him over and off the building. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. Well here's the thing I want to get to about this movie is uh, everyone has superpowers. Like, the angels have superpowers, the villains have superpowers, like, everyone is a super fucking genius. Like, Demi Moore is a rocket scientist, like, a geneticist, like, you name it, assist, and she is it. (laughs) (laughs) The playing field just is not level at all. I mean, everybody has, like, a power, so all of the angels are doing, like, Matrix-style wire work, kung fu stuff, and then Mm -hmm. Justin Thoreau is getting, like, whatever, like, shot or thrown off a building and, like, surviving. Like, he jumps, doesn't he, like, jump off a, he does, like, a superhero landing at one point to chase the angels. Well, there's that, but like the the uh, physics does I, I, like the concept of physics does not like this movie. I don't think because <laughs> no, at no, one no. point they're in that warehouse and they're fighting, and the three angels are surrounded by like 25 guys with like guns and bats and like all sorts of stuff. They somehow manage to like using counterweights get on this like rope that's hurtling toward the roof, and they're really able to jump up there like really easily, which that's that's already crazy. They fly out the top of the building through like wooden uh, like a wooden ceiling 20 feet above the building and then all grab wooden planks that they just oh my god yes and they put them under their feet and they surf down ropes it's like the batman and robin beginning where they're all like flying through the air i don't even remember yeah but that's that's fun like this is this is stupid like this is just dumb like Batman and Robin sort of, I think, knows what it is, kind of. This, I don't know if it does or not. Right, there's at least a precedent for Batman and Robin to go to the camp genre area, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. more hearkening back to the TV show when you get to that point of Batman and Robin, Batman Forever. But I feel like there's no precedent for this whatsoever. Like I said, like, we needed to know that you're a Charlie's Angel because you have superpowers, and that's what the beginning flashback should have been. Like, meet Natalie. She fell into a vat of chemicals, and she came out with the ability to jump high higher than anyone else. It feels like they wanted to make the bionic women instead. I mean, it's insane. It's insane and it's hard to follow because they keep it up the entire movie. Like, that's what's really frustrating for me. You know, you get like Justin Thoreau walking through fire. He's like Wolverine or something, you know, and you get Cameron Diaz is like falling off rooftops left and right and just like shrugging it it off. Oh, they all get like shot off of the observatory by Demi Moore, right? And even though they have Kevlar vests, they survive like a 10-story drop without breaking a bone or anything. It's just insane. Yeah, that's all weird. There's also tons of cameos, like beyond just like these villains, there's cameos like motocross people, there's both Olsen twins, there's Bruce Willis, who probably gets shot in the head by Demi Moore, and they had just filed for divorce when this came oh. out, so that's sort of, you know, a deeper level of something or other. There's <laughs> Melissa McCarthy, who probably was in deleted scenes. She's in the, the closing credits. That's strange. Who that's else? really there's, there's other cameos that I'm not remembering. Who else are there? Pink. Actually, I was like, why doesn't Pink do more acting? She seemed really calm and at ease on, on screen. And then I think we got Eve as one of the faux replacement angels during that fantasy sequence with the Olsen twins. Carrie Fisher is Mother Superior, who I didn't oh, yeah. see. 
She's playing but. a nun, and she also played a nun in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. So mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of funny that she does that. Compared to the Transformers movies... It's close. No, no, I don't think so. I think those are more respectable. They're trying for a story. Right. The in-jokes, the nods, like the winks at the audience are people who know Transformers. Hmm. Here, it's like, hey, look at all these celebrities we got for our movie because I'm McG and I'm really cool. Yeah. Comparatively speaking... I would rather watch Transformers way more times before I watch this. You know, because mm-hmm. I think that this is just, like, everything terrible about this kind of movie. Like, Transformers <laughs> is most things that are terrible about that kind of movie. At least it's, like, it's trying to be something, not original, but, like, kind of, you know what I mean? Here yeah. it's just, like, let's just steal things from other movies and, like, just put people in and we're all just having a good time on set because look at all these celebrities around. Yeah, oh man, real quick, thinking of stealing stuff from other movies, the opening sequence of this borrows from the bar sequence at Raiders of the Lost Ark and the GoldenEye Dam Escape from GoldenEye where he's jumping into the airplane. I think it mostly comes down to the franchise itself, right? Like, people just didn't know Charlie's Angels. They weren't familiar with it when this movie came out, so they had to reestablish everything from the start. Like, here's who they are, here's what they can do, they go on missions, they dress up. And with Transformers, it's just like robots transform into cars and save the world. I feel like that's just easier to sort of grasp onto story-wise, where you can just kind of fill in the blanks a lot more easily than you are with Charlie's Angels, where they're actually there's potential to craft a mystery. That's all just sidelined and bypassed by Mick G because he's making softcore porn almost. It's very yeah. unsettling at times knowing he's behind the camera and they look like the pussycat dolls for half the movie in their underwear. Don't get me wrong. like Oh, the pussycat dolls were in this movie, by the way. Yeah, I noticed that too. And like, you know, believe me, I, would, I wouldn't mind watching this movie again because of the beautiful women, right? But I would never watch it again because of like story enjoyment or anything like that. Like it would have to be on mute. Transformers is much closer to being a competent movie as yeah. far as we're telling a story. This is like we're sticking to choices, even if they're crazy and bizarre to begin with. Like, Charlie's Angels is insane. Like, they're just throwing everything at the wall. Whatever you like, fine. Like, doesn't matter if it makes sense, like, within the world. Like, we're just going to change the rules whenever we need to. It's frustrating <laughs> to watch a movie like that. What annoys me is that the vibe this movie wants to give off is, look how much fun we're all having. Like, mm-hmm. look at all these beautiful people, men and women, and look, we're, having, we're making something that's fun. You're going to love it too because look how much fun we're having. But to me, it just doesn't come across as genuine. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you use that word or not, but like, it feels like forced fun. Like, it doesn't feel like they're actually having fun. It's like, hey girls, like you're going to dance while moving boxes in the living room and then you're going to like jump over the couch and like all fall down and like giggle with each other. Why? Yeah. Like, what's the, like why? Because we want a dance scene. But like later in the movie, <laughs> there's like a sexy dance scene. So this is just like a fun dance scene. Like I don't understand why there's two in this movie other than it's like you said before series of music videos yeah there's tons of dancing in this movie for no reason (laughs) like they just break out and dance and i mean maybe that's just what they want to see themselves doing at points like it's weird like i i do think like each of these girls the main angels are good in what they do but they just don't feel like they have chemistry you're right it feels forced and it's obvious to me if it's obvious to you too apparently but i don't know lucy lou for much but why isn't she in more stuff i feel like she's the best angel but she has the least to do they really focus on cameron diaz a lot the fucking camera loves her in this movie too it's amazing but yeah i just don't feel like they're genuinely friends or just, just don't feel like a team to me 
I mean, compare this to boy bands of the 90s and another podcast on our network now and again and talking about, like, manufactured groups and, like, sort of, Mm -hmm. like, you're the this boy and you're the this boy and you're the this boy. Here, it's sort of like, Cameron Diaz, you are the one who has the fiancé, maybe, or something, or almost fiancé, and, like, you're just about your family, kind of, and you might be leaving. And Lucy (laughs) Lou, you are the one whose dad doesn't really know what you do. You're always getting into, like, weird... Oh, I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know I was giving off eight double entendres in one sentence. <laughs> Drew Barrymore, you're the one who doesn't have a boyfriend for some reason, because why? I don't understand. Oh, so it's like Drew Barrymore, her ex-boyfriend's trying to kill her. Lucy Liu is uh, having a timeout with her boyfriend, and then Cameron Diaz is moving in with her boyfriend. Yep. So they're all just, like, defined by the men in their lives, which mm-hmm. is, like bad man that's a (laughs) no-no the last thing i want to talk about is the music and my first note is that you cannot use miserloo in a movie after pulp fiction like you just can't do it agreed agreed and they do it on the beach because hey it's surf music that everybody knows and like they're surfing so like let's put that in yeah and dick dale never wrote another song in his life i guess so you know we have to use and there's never like hundreds of other great surf punk music that right. like you can use and that just works as well like dude you're telling me you can't even get a beach boy song i mean give, mm. oh they use surfer girl my mistake they use every song i mean like Firestarter when they get into a fight like dude. they use what other songs that dude, I write they down? use rob zombie fat boy slim prodigy everything that was really peaking i think the chemical brothers yeah everything that was big at in 2003 is in this movie yeah yeah, EDM was really sort of on the rise, I guess. So, like, they wanted oh. all the stuff that had an MTV music video associated with it. So, like, you could go buy the soundtrack and then watch it on MTV if you wanted. Matt LeBlanc is dancing around and working. So, of course, he's got to be working for the weekend. Firestarter, when she uses the flamethrower. Mm-hmm. I mean, the needle drops in this are just, like, insane. I hate it. It's like they Googled song about working. Oh, first result, working for the weekend. Let's just put it in there. <laughs> and there's no thought. You compare it to Miser Lou, where Tarantino, and we've talked about on another podcast. I don't remember if we talked about it on Shia or on another one, but like, he sort of rescues these songs. Like, I feel like he like, that's sort of why he makes movies sometimes is like, to show off these cool songs that he found, like, out of nowhere. And people mm. steal those and use those in other movies. Compare that to this, where like, it's the opposite. It's there's yeah. no thought as opposed to like deep thought that like I can't hear Miserly without thinking about the opening credits of Pulp Fiction. Right. Here yeah. it's just like a generic beach scene. Like I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't enhance anything. If anything, no. you're right. It drags it down a level and makes you think of how it was better used before. And you know, yeah, Scorsese is very good at using songs as well. I feel like him and Tarantino are sort of like the masters of it. Oh man, when they drop Everlasting Love during the Bernie Mac sequence talking about bill murray i almost fucking smashed my dvd player like it was just like impossible for me to hear i think we were saying it's akin to what they were doing in suicide squad this summer where it's just like let's drop this needle let's drop this song oh rolling stones sympathy with the devil or something it's like amanda waller's the devil like it's like give me a fucking break sometimes yeah it's bad the only other thing that I wanted to mention was that the only casting thing that I saw that was relevant to Shia, there was another actor who auditioned for his part, and I didn't know who he was. It turned out that the guy who plays Superman on the new Supergirl show auditioned to play uh, Max, or, yeah, Max role. I was like, who is this guy? I was like, oh, it's Superman. Okay. Huh. I don't know, like, there's no word why Shia got this. I mean, I guess they just sort of liked... I feel like whoever Shia's agent was in the early 2000s, like, really, like, did their job. Because right. he's in a lot of these movies, and we were talking a couple of episodes ago about how like maybe he should be the lead of smaller movies maybe like he was in Shaker Heights the fact that he is a pretty decent or at least imp- 
important, semi-important character in, like, this movie and iRobot and Constantine, like, blockbuster movies, like, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I think he's got a good look for this role as well. He can be someone you don't know that comes on screen and has, like, a distinct personality that you go, whoa, this guy is, like, kind of different than everyone else in a way. Yeah, it's just kind of cool. Like, I think he just has, like, a natural talent for it. Like, he's just charismatic and the camera likes him and even when he's not trying you know he's good I feel and you know in this one it was kind of cool to see him hold his own in a room with Bernie Mac and those three girls and being the new guy and being the young kid and everything and it's just like he just seems comfortable like I'm like this guy is just I understand why he goes on to be a movie star and I just hope I'm talking like nowadays like you know modern day shy I just hope like he really keeps it up and you know doesn't lose his taste for acting and like just you know keeps going because he's got interesting phases of his career and it's just really interesting to see that even at this young age like he can hold his own with these heavyweights and down the line he will become a heavyweight I agree for all things all his movies you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub, like our page, follow our page, listen to other shows on the network, see the episodes that we've done, see what's coming next. Next up is Dumb and Dumberer when Harry met Lloyd. So, you know, it's, uh, we're getting there. That's the thing that's happening. So <laughs> I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on All His Movies. I-